Welcome to the High Praises Church Podcast. We hope you are blessed by today's sermon. Now, here's student pastor Evan Sastar. Hey, several years ago, when I was either interning here, maybe it was my first year, someone had reached out to me to ask if I wanted to go to lunch with them one day. And I think maybe they were kind of considering ministry or something like that, and they wanted to ask me some questions. So I said, sure, we can go out to lunch. And so we set up a date and time and location and all that good stuff. And um, it was either the day before or the day of, I don't really remember. He texts me and says, hey, man, something's come up. I won't be able to make it. So I'm thinking, okay, right, that's normal. Things happen. Things come up. We'll just reschedule. So that's what we do. We, we reschedule for another date. So then that day comes around, either the day before or the day of. He texts me again. Hey, man, something has come up. I'm not going to be able to make it. Now, this is where I should have learned my lesson, but I did not. So we reschedule for the third time. We're getting ready to, uh, you know, to go eat. The time is getting closer. And I make the most rookiest of rookie mistakes. And I go, I get to the restaurant before he's there, and I sit inside and order a water. And it's five minutes, and it's 10 minutes, and it's 15, and it's 20, and the dude still isn't there. And I text him, and I'm like, hey, bro, are you on your way? And he goes, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. Something came up, and I won't be able to make it today. And the worst part is that I'm not going to eat by myself like a loser. So instead, I have to do the walk of shame where I call the waiter over, and I'm like, I'm sorry, something happened. I'm not really, something came up very important. I'm just going to go now. And I had to get up and walk up out of the restaurant. That is very embarrassing. I do not recommend it, right? But like, I trusted this guy for no good reason, but I trusted him. He promised me that he would be somewhere. He promised me that he would do something, and I I put my faith in him, and he failed me. And I can guarantee you now, I'm a lot more careful. I try to have a lot more control. I'm not getting out the car, going in the restaurant, unless we've confirmed three or four times at least. Because we put our faith in people, right? But we're afraid that they're going to let us down. You know, as I think about our relationship with Jesus, we need to know this, that the foundational principle of our relationship with God is one of faith. He is a God that we can't see. He's a God that we can't just go and touch. He doesn't give us evidence before our eyes. What God does is he speaks to us in his word. He makes promises, and we just have to believe that those promises are true, and he will do what he said he's going to do. In fact, the foundation of your salvation is by faith. God promises in the gospel, all of your sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ Jesus. If you believe, you will be saved. You're saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. We are saved by faith. But oftentimes, we can struggle with this faith. We can struggle trusting God because the truth about your natural, corrupt, sinful human nature is it is not naturally disposed to trust God. It's naturally disposed to do what we want to do and trust ourselves. And so when it comes to the equation of salvation, we find ourselves inserting ourselves in places where God has never told us to. So rather than trusting God's word, I'm forgiven for Jesus. It's, Lord, how about we make an exchange? I'll do this for you, and you give it to me back. 
because I can observe that and I can see that and I can control that and I can make sure it happens and I don't have to trust Jesus. What about my righteousness? What about if I'm trying, like just on the inside, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'm giving my very, very best, then you give me righteousness. I can control it, I can see it, I can make it happen, and I don't have to trust that what he says is true, though I can never see it. But I've come to tell you today that the just do not live by their works, the just do not live by their good intentions, the just live by faith. And so today, that's why we are looking at the book of Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk falls in the category of one of the minor prophets. Now, this isn't called that because he's like less important than the group of writings called the major prophets. He just falls into a group of prophets whose writings are shorter. So that's why they're called the minor prophets. And Habakkuk is a really interesting book. It's only three chapters. I encourage you to go read it today. It'd only take you like five to ten minutes. Habakkuk is a bold prophet. He kind of reminds me of Job a little bit because All Habakkuk does is he shows up and he questions God. At the beginning of the book, he shows up to God and he's like, God, there is so much sin going on within your people. There is so much sin happening in the nation of Judah. The kings and the priests and the prophets, they're all corrupt. They're taking advantage of people. They're living in sin. And then he points the finger at God. I thought you were just. Why aren't you doing anything? So then God graciously responds to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, don't you worry, I'm going to do something. I'm going to raise up the wicked nation of Babylon, and I'm going to send them to pronounce judgment on Judah. Then Habakkuk boldly comes back to God and starts questioning him again. God, how could you? First of all, Babylon is like 10,000 times more wicked than we are. I mean, we're bad, but at least we got some righteous people in here. I mean, we're bad, but at least we're your covenant people. Babylon is wicked through and through. How could you do this? And then the second thing is that in Habakkuk's eyes, for God to use Babylon to judge Israel is just to allow them to go and go on and on destroying people. It would mean the end of God's people and then the raising up and strengthening of Babylon. He he can't understand how in the world this could work. In fact, um, at the end of chapter 1, verse 17, he says, Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? You're just going to go, let, let them go on and do this. But then the next thing that God promises Habakkuk at this question is the kind of back half, back three-fourths really of chapter two, as he promises judgment on Babylon. He pronounces five series of judgment that because of their sin, they are going down. God's going to use them for a tool a bit, but God will protect Judah, and he's destroying the enemy. And the passage we're looking at today is God's preface to these promises. He's kind of prepping Habakkuk to hear his word, to hear his promise of the future. And so if you you would, would you stand with me in honor of God's word today? It is a short passage. Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, it says this. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. 
pay attention to this. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. But the just shall live by his faith. And indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man and he does not stay at home because he enlarges his desire as hell and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Thank you. You can be seated. So Habakkuk is is in the midst of all of this questioning before God. God, how could you? God, I thought you were righteous. God, I thought you were just. How can you use the wicked nation of Babylon? And God promises, don't you worry. They're going to judge my people for a time, but a time is coming when I'm going to judge them. And then as he's prepping them for this judgment, he's like, Habakkuk, I want you to write this down. Make sure it's legible. Make sure it can be easily read. Like, I want my word down on a tablet for people to reference because I'm positive I'm going to do this. But he tells him this, the promise I'm giving you, right, it's not just for, like, tomorrow. It's not happening today. You are not going to see it quickly. It's for an appointed time. It's towards the end. It will delay, but when I decide to make it happen, it won't delay. He tells them that it's going to tarry. But don't worry, it won't tarry. He's telling him that. You're not going to be able to see this, but I promise you, Habakkuk, it is coming. But then in verse 4, God kind of switches up and he compares Babylon to his perfect idea of a righteous person. He kind of compares and contrasts. Babylon is the foil to the type of person God wants you and I to be. He says, behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. That's the proud. But the just shall live by faith. He's comparing Babylon and what Judah and Habakkuk need to be. And so check the kind of order of how this thing works. First, Babylon starts with being proud. They're arrogant. They're all about themselves. They think they know what is best, what will make them happy, what will make them succeed, that they are powerful, they're in control, they can slaughter nations, they can kill people, they can get drunk, they can worship idols, nobody can stop them. The the kind of spirit of Babylon is all about me. And what does it produce? His soul is not upright in him. It produces wickedness. But then God gives us the opposite. Habakkuk, I don't want you to be like that. I don't want you to be like him. Because the just shall live by his faith. It is those who have faith, not in themselves, but in the promises of God, who are declared just or righteous in God's sight. And as we take a look, not just at the immediate context of Habakkuk, But when we look at kind of the whole tenor of Scripture, we realize that God is speaking something very, very particular to us. When he says the just shall live by faith, he means this. That when you have faith in God's promises, in God's eyes, it is as if you are perfectly righteous. In the courtroom of God, all of your sins are forgiven and wiped away, and in God's eyes, you are righteous righteous. And we've got to look at this through the whole tenor of Scripture. I want to show you two places, Genesis and then Romans. Just like Habakkuk, God shows up this dude named Abram, who's eventually Abraham. 
And he says, Abram, get up, leave your family, move to this brand new nation, this brand new land. I'm going to give it to you. Abram, I know you and your wife are super old, past childbearing years, but I promise you I'm going to give you a son, then I'm going to make you into a great nation, and then that nation is going to bless the earth. And so God makes these promises to Abraham, and in Genesis 15, 6, it says this, and he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abram was not a perfect person. He didn't always have perfect faith. He lied quite a few times, wasn't always the best leader in his household, but because he trusted the promises of God in God's eyes, he credited it to his account as perfect righteousness. And then what do we got God saying all the way in Habakkuk? The just shall live by faith. Then we go to the New Testament this time. In Romans, and Paul is writing his most complete kind of treatise on what it means to be a sinner and be saved by Jesus, for your sins to be forgiven, to, to be justified by faith. And in Romans 1, 16 through 17, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the promise of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness, is, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And watch this. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. What is at the very center of Paul's theology of salvation? of forgiveness, of being justified in God's sight. It is Habakkuk 2.4. The just shall live by faith. In fact, it goes on in Romans 3.21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, or the Old Testament that we just looked at. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, forgiven, declared righteous, freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. I've come to tell you today that the principle of relationship with God, the principle of salvation in Christ, has always been, is now, and will always be through faith in God's promises. It's how he saved Abram, it's how he saved Habakkuk, and it's how he will save you. But there's a reason that in Habakkuk, God kind of gives us the foil of Babylon. He gives us the opposite of what we should be. He doesn't just say that just shall live by faith, but the opposite is that a proud man, an arrogant man, lives in wickedness. Because God knows that our natural inclination is not to live like a citizen of his kingdom, but to live like a citizen of Babylon. God knows that our natural inclination is not outward trust toward him, but because of the corrupt nature of our heart, because of original sin, because we were born sinful, we want to trust in ourselves just like Babylon did. I think it was St. Augustine who said that our, our loves are disordered. So that all the love that was originally created to go towards God and neighbor is actually now bent in, back in on itself. 
And now everything I do according to my sin nature is not for out there, it's back in here for me. And God knows if we are not careful, we will not have faith in his, God, in, in his promises. But we will try to save ourselves by our own will, our own way, and our own power. But the bad news is that the arrogant, the proud, the ones who do it their way, they don't receive righteousness in life. They receive judgment and death. Doing it your own way will fail you every time. It kind of reminds me, does anybody here like history? Raise your hand. Y'all like history? Right? You may, maybe you'll have to correct me on this story. I'm sorry. But y'all remember Napoleon Bonaparte? Y'all remember that dude? Y'all know who I'm talking about? Right? Short guy, big ego. He's always got his hand right here on his stomach and all the pictures. So way back when, in 1812, Napoleon Bonaparte was the leader of the French army, and he was feeling good about himself, winning some battles, expanding the empire. And so in 1812, he decides he's going to march right into Russia and take Russia. And this dude is confident. He has got tons of soldiers. He's got, uh, you know, uh, all the equipment. They're, they're great at fighting. They're great at warring. He thinks, I'll march on into Russia. This will be a, I mean, just a quick victory, and I'll expand the empire. Well, Napoleon marches on in there all proud, all arrogant, thinking he knows what he's doing, and he marches into Russia, not for a quick victory, but it takes him six whole months. Not only that, but he marches into Russia during the Russian wintertime. Now, I am no expert in geography, but I'd put everything I own down that France in the winter is way warmer than Russia in the winter. And so these dudes march on in there, not for a quick victory, but for six months. And then they didn't prepare. They didn't have the right equipment. So when that, those winter storms came, there were people freezing to death because they weren't prepared. Not only that, they didn't have enough supplies and food and things like that. Napoleon underestimated how bad the roads were, and he thought he could just ship some supplies up, and it didn't work. After six months of not even fighting, the Russians were just running from them, not even engaging in battle. Napoleon lost 300,000 of his men and eventually was shipped off to exile. From his arrogance, doing things his own way, it ended in death and exile. If that's not a picture of sin, I'm not sure what is. God knows the sinful nature will pop up, and instead of trusting God's promises, he wants to do it my way. And so what are, what are the areas when it comes to salvation by faith where instead of trusting God, you're trusting yourself? I think one of the ways we do this is we kind of want to manipulate God. We think we can do an exchange with God. We want to treat God like any household idol in the ancient Near East. Kind of reminds me of this story in 1 Samuel chapter 5. The Israelites fight the Philistines and they lose. And they're like, I wonder why God made us lose. And instead of going, God, why did we lose? Lord, are we in sin? God, direct us. What's your will? What's your way? We trust you. You know what they did? They said, you know what? We'll pick up the Ark of the Covenant, this kind of physical representation of God's presence, and we'll march into battle with it. And then God has to bless us just like the Philistines do with their God and all these other people do with their gods. We don't want to talk to God. We want to hear his word. We'll just pick it up, and he's got to do it because we carried him in there, right? 
You know what they do? They march on in the battle, get their tails whooped, and the Ark of the Covenant ends up getting stolen by the Philistines, and the glory of God departed from Israel for a moment. God is not a household idol to be manipulated. He is God Almighty to be trusted. So you can't set up an agreement with God. Well, God, I'll come to church, and I'll tithe, and I've done this one, so I'm making fun of myself here. God, on the way to church, I will only listen to Christian music. Now, on the way to Chili's is country music, okay, afterwards, but on the way, it's Hillsong or Chris Thomas. That's it. God, I'll, I'll be like a pretty decent person. Let, and we think we can just manipulate God. God, I give you this, and you give me good standing. And why do we love it so much? Because it's all about me. I don't have to trust God when I can keep up my own church attendance, my own giving, my own actions, and I can kind of control it. I don't have to trust the word of God when I can just kind of go through this little mechanical transaction. I don't have to trust the Lord when I am in control. It's all by sight and not by faith. And to be honest, we kind of like the credit we get too because we think we contributed to our salvation, not God alone. Or maybe... Your problem is it's kind of the, the church of the medieval age, the church that Martin Luther and the rest of the, the, the reformers had to reform, that your salvation with God is not based on your faith and his promises, but it's simply based on are you doing your best? Not, not that you're perfect, but deep down in your soul, are you doing your very, very best? Are you trying your hardest for God? And then and only then will you be good. But the problem with this mindset is it produces two kinds of people. It produces Pharisees or it spirals people into despair. Because if your relationship is based on how good you are doing, we are really good at living in a fantasy world. And so just like the Pharisees, we can be like, well, I hadn't smoked, I hadn't drank, I hadn't cussed, and I hadn't gone down to the bar in 55 years. I'm good, right? Never mind you got bitterness and unforgiveness and envy and jealousy living in your heart, but as long as you can ignore ignore that, me and God are good. And you love it because you can control it and complete it, and you can trust in yourself. You don't have to believe the word of promise. But then the other side is despair, because maybe you live in reality, and you're like, I'm actually a sinner. I'm not a good person. I'm not perfect. And it sends you spiraling. Because rather than trusting God's promise of forgiveness, you thought, I had to be perfect and I failed. There's no hope for me. It's exactly what happened with Judas. He knew he had sinned. He betrayed God. But rather than turning to the promise, we know what happened to him. He fell into despair. When we trust in ourselves... It ends in death and disappointment and destruction every single time. But can I please just give you some good news today? If you are carrying around this burden, if you're carrying around this load, if you aren't trusting in God, set it down. You are not forgiven and declared righteous by your good intentions or by your hard work or by anything you can perform. The just live by faith. And the promise of the gospel 
is that your sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ Jesus, who lived and died and rose and ascended to the right hand of the Father for you. You don't have to do, you only have to believe in everything Christ has already done. Come on, give him praise today. Set down your burdens. You don't have to live like that. But the thing about faith is this. Faith is not just the hands that receive the the righteousness of God here in the present. Faith is what sustains us in the waiting while we wait on God's future promises to be fulfilled. Faith is the joy and celebration and strength that keeps us going in this dark world while we wait on God to do all he said he would do. Right, think about Habakkuk. God's telling, telling him, I promise you I'm going to destroy Babylon. I promise you they're not going to get away with it. I promise you I'm going to make everything right. But this is for an appointed time. This is not for tomorrow. I promise you, but this is kind of about the end. I promise you, but you're not going to see it right now. I promise you, but it's going to be for a bit. Habakkuk Listen to me, you're going to have to live by faith. Because what you're going to see is Babylon invading your nation and wreaking havoc on it. Habakkuk, what you're going to see is Babylon showing up to Jerusalem and destroying it. Look, look, Habakkuk, what you're going to see is Babylon actually taking your people and dragging them out of their nation into exile. You will live not by what you see, because what you see is death and disaster and the enemy winning. The only way you will carry on is if you have faith in my promise. And what I love about Habakkuk is if we actually flip to chapter 3, and then we actually kind of look at the end of the book, beginning in verse 16 we actually get a picture of the righteous man who lives by faith. Here's what he says, verse 16. When I heard my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, Though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. You want a picture of what it means for a righteous person to live by faith? Habakkuk gives it, and Habakkuk lives it. I love it. First, he's, he's saying, I trembled. Like, I literally trembled. My lips quivered when God made this promise to me. Rottenness entered my bones. Why? that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. It's so funny, Habakkuk saying, you spoke this to me so that I could finally be at rest. 
Because the whole book, God has revealed himself, and Habakkuk's too busy talking back. Well, God, I thought you said you were just. How could you let Judah go on and sin? I'm not Habakkuk. I'm sending Babylon. Well, God, I thought you said you were just, but how could you send Babylon? I am just Habakkuk. I'm going to judge them too. And after hearing the word of the Lord, Habakkuk doesn't have anything snarky or judgmental to say back. I guess I'll just be at rest then while I wait on God to fulfill his promises. Faith is a quiet rest in God. Oh, but then Habakkuk gives some of the most beautiful text in Scripture. He paints a picture of what he's seeing. Babylon has, boom, run into Judah and wreaking havoc on the nation. And what's he saying? Well, the fig tree may not blossom. There might not be fruit on the vines. The olive oil may may fail. The fields have no food in them. The flock is completely cut off from the fold. There's no herd in the stalls. We have nothing. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He makes my feet like deer and I can walk on the high hills. God, I know what I see in the present, but I am strengthened by your promise for the future. God, I know it looks like the enemy is winning right now, but you've made my feet like deer because I know what you've promised for the future. I know there's only suffering and weeping and crying in front of me right now, but I will sing and rejoice in my God because I know the victory you've promised me in the future. Faith will sustain you in the suffering of this world. joy and strength and peace in God's presence in the midst of all of this suffering. It doesn't look at what is in front of me. It looks past it at the promises of God. Kind of reminds me when Elizabeth went on our honeymoon, we had gone on a cruise and then we had, uh, you know, come back the, the day that our cruise ended and gotten off very early in the morning and our flight wasn't until much later. So our plan was to get an Uber and go and eat breakfast somewhere, and then we were going to go to this church that we knew about, and then maybe go eat lunch or something, and then just, like, head back to the airport and spend there the rest of the day until our flight. So we get off the ship. I'm calling an Uber, and I'm Googling on my phone, like, where should we eat breakfast? And I just find something. Like, I'm not spending any time on this, which is, like, a terrible decision. So I give the Uber man, you know, where we're going, And uh, we're in Miami. He doesn't speak English very well. Super nice guy, great driver. Everything's going good, just not a whole lot of communication. We pull up to the breakfast place, and it's a cul-de-sac in the middle of Miami. There is no breakfast unless someone was cooking it in their home. And Uber's just like, all right, get out now. We're done. And I'm like, I am not getting out of this vehicle. I don't know where I'm at. I am freaking out. So finally, Elizabeth was just like, all right, let's give up on the breakfast. We can fast. It'll be more spiritual that way. Let's just get to the church. But the way that Uber works is like you can't just pick up where you left off. That guy couldn't just fire it up again, and then we start paying him and have the GPS tracking for our safety and all of those things. We've made this guy drive to the middle of nowhere, and we're like, hey, we're not getting out of your car. (laughs) And so we're kind of freaking out, and we're like, look, We promise we will pay you in cash. Just take us to this location. We are begging you. 
And now all the safety is gone. And we're trusting this man that we can hardly communicate with, that we refuse to leave his car, that we just made drive to the middle of nowhere to, like, be nice to us, trust we'll pay him and get us to the church and where we needed to go. And so we're driving, and the whole time I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is terrifying. At one point, he's like, I need gas. So I'm thinking, you know, QT, racetrack, Wawa, something reputable. This man pulls over at what I can only um, describe as a perpetual crime scene. You know what I'm saying? And I thought, this is it. He's going he's to murder us. He's getting his money either way. We are dead. Finally, he gets back in, did not kill us, super nice guy, and drives us to the church, and we pay him way more than he would have made with Uber because we were so thankful. Everything that I could see around me was terrifying. Everything I could see around me had no guarantee to it. I couldn't communicate. I didn't know where I was at. I'm in a different city. I don't have a car. I don't know what's going on. Uber's not working anymore. Nothing in front of me was good. I get to a murder gas station. Everything is terrifying. The only thing I, do, I could do is trust this guy's broken English that he's going to get me where he's promised me to get me. The life of faith for a Christian is one where things around us may not be going well, but I'm strengthened and I'm encouraged and I'm not frightened like I was, but I'm singing with celebration and joy because I know who my God is. And even though it may look dark in the moment, he fulfills all of his promises. Every promise of God is yes and amen. And I rejoice in the God of my salvation. So today, I don't know what you're going through. It's probably really difficult. But I beg you, fix your eyes on the faithfulness and the promises of Jesus. Maybe you've had a death in your family. You've buried someone. I know it stings in the moment. But he's promised to raise the righteous and give them everlasting life. Maybe your, your family is not exactly like you want it to be. There's tension in your marriage or tension with your children. But God's promised that when he comes back, he will wipe every last tear away. You may have carried sickness in your body this morning, disease or cancer or something you can't fix. But God's promised that when he comes back, he's going to take the corruptible and raise it as incorruptible. And he's going to take what is mortal and he's going to make it immortal. And your fleshly body that is returning to the dust will be a spiritual body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. I don't know what it is that is burdening you today. But fix your eyes on the promises of Jesus, for his promises are sure. And he will give you joy and celebration and strength to carry on, despite what you see. And some of y'all, you are my biggest inspiration. Because I see some of y'all, and we kind of hear about your stories. And you will bury a parent, a grandparent, a spouse, a child. And the moment you step back in this sanctuary, you lift your hands up with an honest heart and tears in your eyes. Hallelujah, death has no grip on me. And you mean it. Because despite what's going on in your, your present, your eyes are fixed on his promises. You can come in battling temptation and sin and failure. 
But by Jesus Christ the righteous, I'm justified with an honest heart. Because I may have to battle sin in this world, but it's, it's getting kicked out forever in the next. Carrying sickness in your body, several of you in this room, but with an honest heart, you can raise your hand, smile on your face. He's greater than the mountain that's in front of me. You are greater. Because it's faith that carries you through despite all of your suffering. And when you fix your eyes on the promises of Jesus, He will carry you through. And so today I ask you to stand. And I'm going to ask first, would our prayer team just come line the front? band can go ahead and come on out. Come on, prayer team, go ahead and line the front. And in a moment, I'm going to ask everyone in the room to step down. And I want you to do two things. Do you need to surrender your own actions and your relationship with God? I mean, dealing with your salvation. If you're trying to save yourself, repent. Say, Lord, I trust your promises today. But two, if you're battling something, if you've carried a burden and a weight in here, if the suffering of this world is it's too much for you to bear. I want, I want to invite you that as you step down here, declare the words of this song, receive prayer if you need to. Take a moment to just fix your eyes on the promises of Jesus and receive strength from Him. So if everyone in the room, would you just step down now? Come on, would you just step down? Everybody in the room. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us Sunday mornings in person or online at 10 a.m. For more information or to watch our services online, please visit us at www.highpraises.org or check us out on social media.